looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Warren, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. Great to have you back for another rocking episode. That's right, we're going to be rocking around the clock one more time. We've got Don Most with us today. That's right, Ralph Mal from Happy Days, thus completing our Happy Days trilogy. Episode 110 with Anson Potsy Weber Williams. Episode 114 with Marion Mrs. C. Ross. And now, episode 116 with Don Most. The Happy Days trilogy is now complete. Don Most, actor, singer, director, loved him in Star Trek Voyager, The Great Buck Howard, Glee, Ed TV. Don is also an accomplished singer. We talk all about that as well during the episode and where you can stream some of his amazing music. We got so much, so much coming up. We talk happy days and so much more. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. Oh my, that expensive sound effect can only mean one thing. A thank you's in order to all my fans. Would you believe live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show is popping all over Apple Podcast podcast chart rankings. And I want to thank you all for it. We're charting in the film interview category in the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Netherlands, India, Portugal. Amazing. Thanks to all of you for listening. And to the rest of the world, what's going on? Why aren't you on board? Come on. Can't you see what Great Britain, Canada, Netherlands, India, Portugal, and the United States have already known for years? That live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show is where it's at. But in all seriousness, thank you all very much. It's fun seeing the show pop on the charts. If I may reflect for a quick second, when I started this podcast and I started to get to meet all these TV, film, singers, writers, directors that created things that I grew up with, it was just so exciting. And I've loved this journey. And so when I was able to talk to a few people from Happy Days, I just was so over the moon about it. You know, when I got to talk to Botsy and Mrs. C and you're going to hear Ralph Mouth in a minute, Don Most, it's just so cool. So I definitely check out the other interviews as well. One ten with Anson Williams, 114 with Marion Ross, and then, of of course, stay tuned for some fun conversation with Don Most. As I was preparing for all the interviews, it's interesting, like with Anson Williams, we talk a lot about how Mickey Dolenz was almost the Fonz. I mean, how crazy would that have been? Like the whole idea, like how different the show would have been had that happened. With Marion Ross, we talked about how the entire cast played softball and went across the country to meet the fans, which played a huge part in Happy Days becoming one of the biggest shows of all time. In this episode, we talk about jumping the shark, the term jump the shark, 
which a lot of people don't realize came from Happy Days. And Don Most and I, we talk about that episode in particular. That's coming up in a little bit. So as you kind of dig into the Happy Days stuff, you find a lot of the trivia. Like I didn't know that in the Smithsonian Institute, the Fonzie leather jacket they have there is actually a replica because the original one was stolen off the set. And also that Henry Winkler was originally offered the role of Danny Zuko in Greece, but he couldn't sing. So we turned the part down and John Travolta turned that into a classic. Maybe y'all can help me get Henry Winkler on the podcast. Tweet at the Fonz and let him know he should be on live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin show. Tell him you heard great interviews from Mrs. C, Potsy, Ralph Mouth, and now you need to hear from the Fonz. Let's do it. Head to social media. Help me make it happen. In the meantime, I do want to thank everyone for supporting the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin show. And that's how we keep the lights on. Today's interview sponsor, Arnold's Drive-In, located in the heart of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Named Milwaukee's number one greasy spoons 30 years in a row. Looking to hang out and eat good food? Come on over to Arnold's Drive-In. Pull up your car for our in-car service or head on in, grab a booth, drop a coin into the jukebox, and rock around the clock. Dance along with your friends, play pinball. And reminisce over good times. Good meals and good times await you at Arnold's Drive-In. All right. Well, I'm hungry. I don't know about you. Gonna go get me a hamburger. In the meantime, get ready for my conversation with Don Most. It's really awesome. If you listen to the Anson Williams conversation, I asked Anson a lot about watching Robin Williams transform into Mork for Mork. I asked Don the same question because he was there too to get a different point of view. All great, all amazing, and that's coming up right now. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, actor, director, singer, but I'll always have a place in my heart as Ralph Mouth from Happy Days. Ladies and gentlemen, Don Most, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. It's good to be with you. Oh, it's so great to have you here. Thanks for uh, hanging with me on my podcast. Much appreciated. Oh, sure. My pleasure. I had the pleasure of kind of getting to know you as a singer as I was getting ready for this podcast, which was great. I listened to a lot of tunes and I want to work up to that. Okay. I was reading Marion Ross's book and she had a nice little chapter on you that you participated in her book for her. But then she opened up with a little bit about how you were very into Al Jolson and at your bar mitzvah, you even got up with the band and sang Al Jolson. And that was sort of like the start of the whole acting career, singing lessons that that seemed to be a big piece of your origin story. So how does a nine-year-old become obsessed with Al Jolson? Yeah, yeah, because I was nine when I saw the the movie, The Jolson Story, the biopic on, on him. And the movie just, I don't know, it had this really profound impact on me. I loved it was a combination, you know, I mean, it was a really good story. Obviously, it was a big hit at the time. And Jolson had been, you know, considered the world's greatest entertainer in his heyday into the early 19, the teens and the 20s. He made the very first talking movie, The, the Jazz Singer, because he was the biggest star. So it was a combination of the story. Jolson's talent came through, even though it was Larry Parks playing Jolson. And Larry did a great job capturing Jolson, but it was Jolson's voice that came through in a big way for me and his charisma, his, his amazing talent. I wound up watching the movie. It was on something called Million Dollar Movie they had in New York on Channel 9, I remember. And they would show a movie, one movie for the entire week. 
and they would show it twice a night during the week and four times Saturday and four times Sunday. So after I watched it the first time on a Tuesday night, I think I watched it every time after that. So I probably watched it like 12 times that week. And, I, you know, I was nine years old, and I was just mesmerized by everything about Jolson and, and the story. And I went out and bought his records, and I would go start singing along to Jolson and sing for my grandparents and, you know, that kind of thing. And then by the time I was 13, I think when I got up at my bar mitzvah, because there was a good band, and they, they were playing some of that music. So somebody told them, I don't know, I can't remember how it happened, but they said, come on up. And they said, what song do you want to do? And I said, Rockabye. Rockabye, Your Baby with the Dixie Melody was a big Jolson uh, hit, and it was one of my favorites. So I did it, and people were like, you know, whoa, holy cow, you know, talking to my parents. And they realized how much I wanted to pursue this. So they they were supportive, and you know, as long as I still doing my school, regular schooling and all that. And they, they found through a friend of theirs at this school, a studio in Manhattan, run by a guy named Charlie Lowe an old vaudevillian performer. He and his wife had this studio for kids and teenagers for singing, acting, dancing, and all that. So that's when I started going there. And, and it led to me, actually, I got picked from there to sing in, in a nightclub review when I was 14, 15 years old, up in the Catskill Mountains one summer. And I was singing with seven other of those students that had been handpicked doing all the hotel nightclubs up in the Catskills. And I thought I had made it big time, you know. So that, and then I switched gears and I really, then I switched into a very more serious acting class, a workshop, put the music aside for a while. And I just, I really got into the acting side for, at that point, which then eventually led to me going out to California four years later and landing some roles that led up to Happy Days. Marion mentioned that you went through the same kind of process as her as a, when she was a young girl, which was having to break it to your parents that you wanted to be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> she had like a similar situation, but they, they seemed to like really embrace this was going to be your decision. Like I said, as long as it wasn't interfering with, you know, regular schooling, it, they were very supportive. And, you know, then when it came, when I was in high school and approaching that time when you're looking into colleges, you know, they felt very strongly that I should at least go to college and have a something to fall back on, something substantial, and not go to college for theater, but to go to college for something totally different and not quit, not after high school graduation, then just pursue acting. Now, I had been doing pretty well by then in New York. I grew up in Brooklyn, and like I said, I was in that class. And then I met a woman who became my manager and got me out to meet agents, and I was starting an audition. And I started getting a lot of national TV commercials. That's how I got my Screen Actors Guild card and a few small TV things that were, wasn't a lot of television shot in New York back then. But I got a few things and a lot of commercials, but they said, after college, but at least you'll have that as the fallback. So I went to Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, entered as an engineering major because that was what I was in school. I was really good in math and science. My grandfather had been an engineer. My two uncles were engineers. My cousin was studying to be an engineer. So that was the uh, the best bet, or I guess uh, made the most sense. I did that. But after one semester, I transferred out of the engineering school because I was spending more time. I was missing classes because I was taking a bus from Pennsylvania into Manhattan for auditions, you know, and, and missing classes. And I don't, you can't really be an engineering major, I think, without, if you're not going to class. So I transferred out of that school and went into the business school and I was able to get by in there. And I was doing plays and theater in college as well. 
for fun. But then I went out. That's how they felt. And and they were right. I mean, it was it was the smart thing to do. And it all worked out fine because then I was still, I went out to California um, after my junior year for the summer. And, um, and I wound up staying because things were start. I was starting to get work and land some roles and took six months off of college my, at my agent's suggestion and said, you can go back, but you got some momentum, keep it going, you know, because I was landing some roles and not that long after the series of auditions for Happy Days. There's something about Brooklyn, right, where you're from. There must be something in the water with the people with voices from Brooklyn. Neil Diamond, Barbara Streisand, Marvin Hamlish, Gershwin. <laughs> something. Yeah, Gershwin too. And Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand, I went, I went to, we all went to the same high school too. Maybe we can pinpoint it to a, a water fountain at that high school. <laughs> at Erasmus Hall. Erasmus Hall High School, yes. I, I think it's a great training ground growing up in a place like Brooklyn, and I would think Detroit too, Chicago. Any, you have to constantly be adapting to things, you know, the pace and the diversity and, and the stimulus that you have and uh, the energy. I think it's a, it's a really good sort of environment, a, a breeding a good breeding ground for people pursuing acting and in a creative way. It might, but for some reason, the acting, you know, so many people come from there. And that same high school I mentioned, Barbara Stanwyck went there and Eli Wallach and a lot of others like Mae West it goes on and on. So yeah, there is something about growing up in the streets of Brooklyn that I think lends itself to an actor's psyche. So before Happy Days, you you landed a role in Emergency, yeah, Police Story, and Room Twenty, Room Two, Room Two Twenty Two, yes, Two Twenty Two, Room Two Two Twenty Two. The interesting thing I I saw about Emergency was that that was also John Travolta's first oh first acting. I didn't even know that. That's interesting. I didn't know just, that was John's first, I guess, TV job out when he came out to LA from New Jersey. He was you know similar tri, the tri-state area, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey. When I was kind of referencing that to see if, you know, you read something, you want to make sure it's right. Then I realized that Mr. T and Tina, which was Pat Morita's show, was actually a spinoff of Welcome Back, Cotter, which I did not know. Oh, wow. I'm not sure I remember that. That's interesting. You've got all this great uh, trivia that... I know. You start to go down these rabbit holes. I was like, well, it's the only reason I even noticed that was because when I was looking at his IMDb, it said Vince, uh, Vinny Barbarino under Mr. T and Tina. And the only reason Mr. T and Tina caught my eyes, because I knew Pat Morita when he was on Happy Days was also doing that. And yeah. he was on um, Sanford and Son and MASH. And, and so I was like, oh, Vinny Barbarino, was that a spinoff of? Yeah, you know, it seemed like everything was a spinoff back then. <laughs> if it wasn't the original show, it was a spinoff of a really good show. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of, you know, Mork and Mindy was a spinoff from Happy Days, and Laverne and Shirley was a spinoff from Happy Days. Yeah, there's so many great shows that just had those origins. So, all right, so let's talk about Happy Days. You get the audition for Happy Days. There was already been one pilot at this point. You weren't part of the original pilot. That's right. Yeah, Anson Williams played Potsy in the original, and Ron Howard played Richie in the original, and Marion Ross was the mom, but they had a different father played by Harold Gould, and I think a different daughter. I, I think there was a daughter. It wasn't Erin. And there was no Ralph. There was no Fonzie. And, and it was like 1972, I guess. And it didn't sell. It didn't get on the air. But then, you know, like a year later, American Graffiti, a year and a half later, American Graffiti comes out. Big hit about you know, taking place in the 50s. And Greece comes out on Broadway. And Again, about the 50s. So I think some of the executives at ABC are going, wait, wait a minute. We had a show about the 50s and they went back to Gary and 
said, we think maybe we should revisit this. But they were telling Gary that Ron and Anson, it's now like a year and a half later, and they were concerned they would maybe be too old by the time they did it to play high school. And Gary was like, no, no, they could still do it. But the network made Gary test them again. Even though they had done it, they had to test along with about eight or 10 other hopefuls, myself being one of the other hopefuls of all these different pairings of Richies and Potsies. I was auditioning for the, they put me up for the role of Potsy and that's what I wound up after my was my third time back was the screen test. And that was a, that was an experience that day. <laughs> it was a long day. <laughs> I had read that you also auditioned for Richie. No, no, it's not the case. Hmm. I did not. But one of the, there were some other Robbie Benson was there that day screen testing. He was reading for Richie, Robbie Benson, who I knew from New York. We had done a commercial together. Uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup commercial, which is, is uh, they were playing it all over again as a retro commercial, which I did when I was 18. But so there was Robbie, uh, who I knew auditioning for Richie. You know, they obviously went stuck with Ron and Anson and said, no, you, Gary, you're right. They they still look like they could be high school. And so they got cast again. But then what they told my agent, they liked my the, some of the executives, very impressed with my screen test. And they said, to Gary, you should put him in the show, make him, you know, find a role for him, and he should be in the show too. That's how there was a small part in the pilot episode of a guy named Ralph Malf and who was into cars and stuff. And they, they didn't tell me much more than that. He's into cars. And from the dialogue in it, he had a couple of scenes, not anything big, but a few little scenes. You know, he was a wisecracker. He was, but if you look back at him in those early days, especially in this first four, five, six episodes, he was a little, he was almost a little cooler, you know, he, because he was like the guy that had this cool car and, and maybe had some women around him too. And, and you know, he, Richie and Potsy knew him, but they weren't like really tight. But then they started getting me more and more involved. And then we became like really good friends. And the character changed a little, you know, evolved somewhat over the next few years. I think that's amazing. And it's it's such a kind of a testament and a good lesson, I think, for anyone in acting. It's like, always give it a thousand percent. Because you could have easily gone in there thinking, oh, Ron Howard, Nancy Williams, they already did this pilot. This is just, they're just bringing me in to, you know, to right. check some boxes here. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and yeah. they loved you I'm, so much. They're like, this guy, we need this guy. We need him in the show. So that's that's really cool. That's a great story. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there was a certain amount of the intimidation factor when I saw Ron, I didn't know really Anson at the time, but then they, through the rumor mill, I started hearing they had done this pilot. But, but of course I knew Ron because everybody knew Ron. So I was very well aware of Ron, especially because we were about the same age, both had red hair. And when I was young in Brooklyn, people used to think that I looked, they'd call me Opie because we looked kind of like each other but when I was five, six, seven years old, I'd have people coming up to me and thinking I was him. So you can imagine how weird it was for me. Now here I am screen testing for this this show. And then there's Ron, who I've been called by his character name when I was a kid. It was pretty bizarre. But you're right. If I didn't, if I didn't really um, give it my all, although about halfway through the day, I thought there was no chance I was going to, I was very, um, it was a series of things that happened during that day that I was feeling like, oh man, the stars are against me. The stars are just against me. And I was like, but in a way it was a good thing. I'll tell you, because sometimes you could try too hard. And what happened is it kind of made me 
let go a little bit, you know, and it was like, and and there's a certain amount of power, but there's a certain amount of getting more centered when you when you let go a little bit. And you could, you know, it's fine. It's that fine line. You got to find that right balance, not trying too hard and not giving a damn either. You know, that's not good either. So anyway, it kind of put me in a good place, I think. What were some of the things that were kind of red flags that you thought it was not going well for you? Well, the scene, when I first did this, um, the f- first we had to prepare a scene and, and that went fine. I thought, okay, I did pretty, you know, I thought I did pretty good. But then... Then what happened was afterwards they were having everybody do, they had this young gal there, a very attractive gal, and they were going to have everybody do like an improvisation with her. So they say, you know, what you're going to be doing is you're going to, like you're going out on your first date with this girl, you've been wanting to go out with her. And then it was just going to be an improv, no dialogue written. So um, I'm getting ready. And what happened was I was, I had just turned 20, but some, most of the other actors there, there were some that were not even 18 yet. And the girl wasn't 18 yet. So they have to get, they don't have as much time with, by the union's uh, rules, much time to work with, you know, the workday is shorter if you're under 18. So they were getting everybody out of the way first. And then by the time it came to me, they said, oh, the girl, we couldn't keep her anymore because it was so you're going to do your improv with Harvey Miller over there. He was like one of the writers. <laughs> he was one of the writers of Odd Couple that Gary you know, worked with. And, you know, here's a guy like, I don't know, he might have been 40 years old. I, I'm doing my improv with Harvey Miller, with this guy, and everybody else got to do it with this great looking gal. And, and I'm feeling, I'm screwed, you know. So they said, well, you know, we'll give you a different situation and I, I didn't think that was a good good thing at the time. And then then by the time they got the third thing they were doing was an interview on camera with you because they wanted to see who you were too. And because if you're going to be on a show and they're going to be working with you a long time, they wanted to get a sense of who you were too. By the time we got to the interview, I felt, and I'm waiting around again for everybody else. And by the time it got to me, I was like, this isn't going to happen. So I was like, kind of, maybe I was just really loose, you know, <laughs> and it might have worked to my advantage. I don't know. I, it's funny you mentioned that you looked like Opie when you were younger. I read, again, I'm surprised you may get an FBI warning. Someone was digging into you on Google a lot, but the, uh, <laughs> it was me. But uh, no, I read that, <laughs> I read that the only hesitation Gary Marshall had was having two redheads on the show. Yes. Yeah. And I, I thought that I was surprised that they went ahead and put, you know, if they cast Ron, then I was kind of surprised that they were putting me on as one of the friends, you know, because it's two redheads. But I guess, the, the executives, I, I should be thankful. I, what I read, I found out later, it was a couple of years later that I found out that the executive that really was standing up and saying you should cast Don, Donnie, and my name was, I was going by Donnie then, was Michael Eisner, who was an executive at Paramount Studios at the time, and then went on to become like the head of Disney later on and sure. you know become one of the biggest executives in the business. It was Michael Eisner. So uh, years later, and I ran it, I ran into him somewhere, and I said, you know, I never knew about this. I have you to th- probably to thank for this, you know. And there might have been other people too, but somebody had told me it was Michael Eisner. So anyway, that was kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Now you'd be like, uh, did you get like a free pass at Disney World because of it? They should. He's like, you come anytime you want, Don. <laughs> I should have asked. I should have asked for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So um, talk to me about the evolution of the character and how your catchphrase came into it. 
I'll let you say it. I don't want to butcher it. But the, um, <laughs> but you know, there was a lot of catchphrases on that show. It was, um, there were, but you, you had your own. And so it was sit on it and, and, um, got it. Well, Henry, a, you know, of course, and there were several others. Well, I could probably answer both of those questions in one, in, in a way, because part of the evolution of the character happened. Some of it, what happened was, in, like I was saying early on, I didn't have that much to do. You know, I'd get like a scene here, maybe a scene towards the beginning of the show and then a scene towards the end. And then Richie and Potsy were mainly involved and, and the family. And Fonzie would have a scene here and there too. We were, Henry and I were like peripheral characters. But then they started building me more and more. And, but part of that was a combination that they had to come up with more for me, a little bit here and there. But I was, I was like always into trying to come up with stuff that wasn't even in the script. So like I'd get, I would come up with ideas to embellish, you know, to make my part a little bigger and come up with some, some things. And the director, who was Jerry Paris, who was a brilliant director, he was the guy who directed most of the Dick Van Dyke shows back before us and won an Emmy his first year directing. He was an actor before that in some famous movies, but he was fabulous. He became like a mentor of mine and we were very close. And Jerry loved when I'd come up with an idea that was in a script and, and he'd love it and it would stimulate him and he'd go, oh yeah, yeah. And then it would spur him to come up with something on top of that. And then, oh yeah, yeah. So we like we were like connecting and really working well. And the writers and the producers were seeing what we were doing that was in the script and that helped to sort of build my role and it got a little bigger and bigger and bigger. And as the years developed, and Jerry was more like Ralph than I was, because in real life, I was never the comedian. I was more the quiet kind of honor student guy. I was more like Richie was in high school. I was not my friends. I knew guys that liked to be the funniest guy in the room, but that wasn't me. I was like kind of quiet and more shy and everything. So Jerry was was kind of like Ralph, you know, I mean, he cracked jokes all the time and loved to get laughs, you know. So my character started, you know, I was getting influenced by Jerry and starting to go more and more in his direction a little bit. And he, when he would crack a joke and really score with it in front of everybody, then he'd go, I still got it. I still got it. You know, something like that. He'd do it different ways. So we'd always crack up, you know, he'd go, I still got it. One day I doing a scene, shooting Friday night, you know, in front of an audience. And we're getting ready to shoot the scene in Arnold's. And it was a scene where Ralph's going to crack some kind of joke. And it hit me. <laughs> I said, I go up to Ron. I don't tell anybody else. I say, Ron, be ready. I'm going to do something that's not in the script here. So just be ready. I didn't tell him why, you know. And then I, Ralph cracks the joke at Arnold's and, and they kind of are laughing. And then I just, I went, I still got it, you know, <laughs> just like that. Or I still got it. I can't remember which way I went with it. Everybody, the, they all cracked up. Jerry loved it. And the audience liked it too, even though they weren't in on it. But I guess they just thought it was funny. So from that point forward, they started writing it in for me, you know, in different situations. And, you know, and then it would be like, you know, we're in some predicament and I do I go, even in danger, I still got it, you know, or even in, <laughs> in, 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 even in Waukesha, I still got it or whatever it might've been, you know, it was a real trip for me about 15 years later. I can never forget this. I'm watching, you know, some network show, somebody's being interviewed and they something happens, and then they went I, after they they went. I still got it, and I went holy shit, you know. And then it started coming into the vernacular more and more. I'm hearing it, you know, more and more, and I was like, wow, that is so surreal to me because I I know where it came from. 
it, it wasn't anybody. It was Jerry via me. <laughs> you know? It's it's universal and people could adapt it to themselves, which would be different than just if uh, I was at a party and all of a sudden I went, hey. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> that, wouldn't, that wouldn't seem like a little, that would be a little weirder. Cause well, it, it, it depends on what the conversation was. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> it might fit in. Yours is a little under, more adaptable. Is mine's a little more adaptable, yeah. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> uh, so when Happy Days started off, it's a one camera uh, shoot, so it's more like a mini movie. Then it eventually moves to a three camera in front of a live audience. But part of that transition was recognizing Henry Winkler and the Franz were just exploding. Mm-hmm. What was it like being on the show and making that transition on the show yourself under the umbrella of all this Fonzie mania going on? Wow. Yeah, we didn't we didn't have the none of the cast. We were thrilled, you know. I mean, we were thrilled because first of all, we saw what you know, we were there in the bird's eye view watching Henry create this character and see it evolve and he was doing fabulous, wonderful work, you know, from an actor's point of view and watching what he was doing. And it was like, we were always waiting to see what he was going to do next. And, and it was, he was doing such a great job with it. So then to see it catch on like that was, was exciting. And we felt really happy for him and happy for, it was great for the show. It was great for him. It was great for all of us. And, and it was something to witness to, you know, we had experiences where we'd go out into public when they'd sent us on these publicity tours and and we'd get out in the real world instead of being insulated in the soundstage doing the thing. And you don't know how many people are watching it. And then you go out. And Henry and I attended. There was one event where uh, Henry, Ron, and Henry Hansen and I went. Ron was shooting something. He couldn't be there. And we get to this thing. And there's, you know, there's like, Hansen might have told you the story. There's like, we see thousands of people. And we're going, oh, there must be a concert going on or something around here. You know? And then somebody, Henry says, that they're here for us. And we're like, what? You know? And then they're coming over to the car and rocking the car and everything, you know? I mean, we, we were like, what? We felt like, you know, the Beatles or whatever. And then there was, uh, we couldn't even get through. And then there was another time when Henry and I went to this uh, shopping mall as part of a publicity tour, appearing at the Paramus Mall in New Jersey. And we get there and they were like, just, you could see so many people there. And, and you know, and a lot of the ladies were there happy to see head for the Fonz, I guess, you know, yelling and screaming. And, and the police, the security realized they had these, those saw horses, you know, in front or whatever to keep us because they were going to come around and take pictures or whatever with a sign autographs. But they, with, we were there maybe a minute or two, and they realized that this was going to be a danger. They thought it was a dangerous situation, and they go, "We, you got to get out of here." We're going, "What? We got to get you out of here." We're, we're surrounded. There's nowhere to go. It was a fountain behind us that was like with a wall and all this. And they said, "You're going up that way." I said, "What?" <laughs> Henry and I look at each other. You got to get now. Get out because they, they were surging forward. You know. So there's Henry and I climbing up this his ledge up the wall and to get out of there. And then they whisk us into a car, tell us to lie down, send another limo as a decoy. I mean, it was like, what is going on here? It's like you're in the twilight zone. You know. So so I saw what was going on, and you know, of course, and Henry became he was the number one star on television, you know, it was, it was like, it was a total, it was a craze, you know, it was, it was unbelievable. But like I said, we, we were all very thrilled about it. And, you know, we had to adapt, you know, there were times when you wanted, the, the writers, I think were very, and Gary Marshall's very, and Jerry, very perceptive and smart. And they made sure that 
we all had, they balanced it so that there would be stories that featured Ralph. There'd be stories that featured Patsy. There'd be stories that featured Joni and, you know, that everybody got their due. So that, that really kept it, you know, in a good place where we were all fine. That's cool. I had seen an interview with Ron Howard where he was a little uneasy. He was fine with the transition, but I think they, at one point they wanted to change the name of the show to yes. Fonzie's Happy Days. Right. And he, he said, that's not what I yeah, you know, signed on for. He wasn't into that. Okay, however, one transition that did kind of take that name was during the early run, you, Ron, and Henry went animated with the Fonz uh-huh. and the Happy Days gang. <laughs> right. A Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Right. With Dee Dee Khan. That's right. Uh, as Cupcake, who you later starred in a play with, Middletown. Middletown. And before that, she appeared on Happy Days in two episodes as my girlfriend. Really? That's, yeah. Yeah. That is... Before she ever did Grease. Oh, nice. Yeah. So many connections. So many threads. Yeah. So the cartoon, yeah. So the cartoon, uh, of course, uh, had a uh, a dog named Mr. Cool. And <laughs> right. Fra- Frank Welker was the voice. Uh, and you were trying to get back to 1957 Milwaukee <laughs> as you traveled I, I did, through time. Oh, <laughs> uh-huh, okay. I didn't even remember that, but <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was funny because they finally it was called the Fonz and the Happy Days Gang. I'm like, oh, well, they finally at least got to name something with. Uh, yeah, it was a good, you know, it was a good experience because to do a voice for a cartoon was it was fun. I'd never done it, and then I wound up. It kind of led to me doing the people. Some of the same people were involved in another cartoon called Dungeons and Dragons, and I did that, and it ran I think three seasons, and it was a really that was a fun, really fun one. I liked that one, and and I get people who. It sort of became a little bit of a, you know, cult thing because a lot of people still remember that and bring it up. It was good to experience doing that. And then I did another one, Teen Wolf, another cartoon after that. So um, nice to experience a lot of different things. And as yourself, since we're talking animated for a second, you were yourself on Family Guy. <laughs> yes, that was fun. That was a funny bit. That was a very funny bit. They, they wanted me to, uh, they were having fun with me changing my name from Donnie to Don. And they didn't know, I guess they called my agent and said, we'd love Don to come in and and do this little thing that we put together. If he doesn't want to do it, because they didn't know if I'd, you know, take offense at the joke they were doing. They said, we're going to do it anyway. We'll get someone else, but we'd rather have him, you know? So I read it and I thought it was very, very funny. And I said, oh yeah, I'll do that. You know, I'll go in and do it. And and then they did such a funny, they did a great job with the with the chorus of the music that's coming up behind me as my, my figure, my statue, whatever, Donnie Most rises from the mist. Every hundred years. Yeah. It was a kind of a takeoff from Brigadoon, I guess, uh, the Brig- the play. Yeah, every hundred years, you know, if the, the, something's just right, you don't even know. And then I rose from the mist. And then at the, at the end, I go, um, what was the exact line? It's Don Most now. Something let, like let that. Let me set you up. Donnie Most, <laughs> right. Donnie Most, he was Ralph on Happy Days. <laughs> That's right. They go, it's Don Most now. <laughs> and then I go back, start going back down as this great chorus. Behind, it was a beautiful, beautifully done piece they did. It was very funny. And people loved it. I get a lot of, a lot of, uh, comments about that you know great comments they family guy is brilliant i mean that was just like in the right in the middle of a scene they're just berry picking and yeah and they right. just uh stewie <laughs> just says through. to brian you know this is this is the exact location where <laughs> every hundred years 
<laughs> right. <laughs> I know, like out of just this total non sequitur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So funny. So consistency wasn't a thing on Happy Days. You had two sets of parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just and there were and there were th- three different chucks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the jump the shark episode. Yeah. It's fun to have watched the series at the time and later that kind of ties into that became such a that's that's just a such a pop culture reference now to like for any show and and I think a lot of people that make that reference don't even realize it comes from Happy Days. Right. But yeah. This is your the but the whole thing was was your character's fault. You, you I think it was your fault. He had to jump the shark in the episode. Why is it my fault? I think you somehow. I was rewatching it. It seemed like you did something, and then Fonz had to jump a shark. I don't. <laughs> oh, oh, you mean like I did something, and then yeah, it yeah. like co- cornered him into yeah. having to do this. Oh, so, okay, maybe I, I can't not remembering exactly, but yeah, it was probably I did something stupid, and then he had to save face or something. I don't know. What was it like in the writer's room where they're like, he's still got to have his jacket on. He can't not be wearing his jacket, even though he's water skiing. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess they probably thought, hey, it would be really funny, you know, like, hey, he's got a, he's in a bathing suit with, you know, he still has the leather jacket. It'll be, it'll be, you know, that'll be great. <laughs> and um, I'm sure a lot of people thought it was pretty funny, but I just, I remember somebody sent me a link. I totally forgot. I kind of remembered, but not to this extent. Ron Howard was being interviewed by by somebody, and they brought up the jump the shark thing. and And he said in, in the interview, he said, "Well, you know, it was really it was really in a way Donnie Mose who kind of came up with that phrase." And I'm going, "I did? What was he talking about?" And then I remembered. He said we were doing a reading of the script on Monday around the table with the writers and the cast and producers, and when it was over. I was not, I thought the script, you know, I, I felt like the scripts were, and I'd been complaining, talking to Ron and going, I felt like the scripts were starting to get really silly and going to, and going downhill in, in, in ways. So he, Ron said in the interview, so Donnie comes up to me after the reading and he looks, takes a moment, he looks at me and he says, now they got the Fonz jumping a shark. And I, I was like, wow, I, I think I remember saying that. So, and then Ron said, I said to Donnie, well, look, you know, we're number one. They, they must know what they're doing. You know, uh, they know what they're doing. But he said, but Donnie was not very happy with the script. You know, I thought it was. And so I said, yeah, now they got the Fonz jumping a shark. Now, somebody else coined that phrase, not knowing I had said that to Ron, you know, but I said it first. <laughs> <laughs> Anson, I, when I talked to Anson, he, he shared a lot about the worst script he thought ever, which was... The, oh, yeah, I know what you're going to say. I know exactly the story. Which was the Mork from Mork yes. episode. Right. And then it became a great show. It became yeah, a great I, show. But I was just curious, like, what was it like from your point of view? Just I, Anson kind of gave his, but like, what was it? You were there at the birth of Robin Williams. I mean, like... Yeah. Um, I mean, he was still, you know, I know he had a reputation as a, as a great improviser, you know, but like just watching this person at work, just creating this magic on the fly, it just yeah. must have been such a magical moment. Yeah, it was. It was It was definitely something that really stood out in a big way. I remember I got to the soundstage a little late. No, I wasn't late, but our call was late, uh, later than everyone else's because Anson and I weren't going to be in some of the, it was the day they... Uh, have cameras block you know, rehearsing with the cameras and coordinating everything and they had a hard time casting the role because the person they originally wanted didn't want to do it 
then they finally cast somebody and then he wound up quitting, you know, because it was the script was we all thought it was like the one of the worst scripts. And, you know, this Martin, this guy from outer space. And it was like, what? And then they so now it's Thursday. It's like Wednesday night and they don't have the role cast and we're shooting it on Friday, you know, and Thursday is camera blocking day. So uh, Gary's sister, Ronnie Hallen, had seen and Al Molinero, too, I think, had seen Robin at the comedy store in, on Sunset Boulevard in, in LA. And they said, we, we've seen this guy, he's perfect for this. Because Robin used to do in his stand-up act, this alien kind of thing. He actually did like, you know, where he was playing with his alien and he did like a lot of funny noises and this and that. So I didn't know that till later. So they brought Ro- Robin in to audition and like he blew Gary Marshall and everyone away. You know, I think he stood on his head and was doing all this crazy stuff. So. I walk in now, so my call is until a little bit later. And answer, we go into the soundstage, and and there's like this palpable buzz, electricity. I can't even describe it. And you know, you just felt it as soon as we got on the soundstage. And then somebody comes up and says, "Where do you see this guy? Oh my God, you won't believe it. This guy's like genius, and he's amazing." And people left and right. So then I would go up to an area we watching the rehearsal, and then. The, seeing Robin for the first time and he's doing all this stuff, you know, that wasn't in the script and make, you know, some of it was probably from his stand up act that he did, but he, but then he's still improvising more. And, you know, and we're like, Oh, our jaws are dropping. Like who is this guy is from outer space. You know, he's playing, <laughs> this guy is, where did he come from? You know, you know, and he turned, it turned into, you know, it was one of the wor- worst scripts and it turned into, you know, a great episode. And, and he had his own show by, by uh, four days, five days later, we found out he's got his own show now. <laughs> I mean, it was that quick. A couple other things I read. You met your wife on Happy Days? Yes. Yes, it was the, what turned out to be my, it was not the last year of filming, but it was my last year because my contract ended. It was the seventh season. That's when Morgan had a guest starring role. She wound up doing two episodes, but we met during that first one and got along very quickly and I was very enamored with her and we started I took her out for dinner before we shot the show and and we started dating and and then two years later got married and we're having our 40th wedding anniversary in about two and a half weeks mazel tov that's awesome thank you does she ever hold it over your head that she smooched the fonts? <laughs> no, not really. Not really. <laughs> but that was the year then after that season, both Ron and I opted not to renew. The show ran for four more years after that, but Ron and I were no longer on it after that. Do you regret leaving at that point? No, no, I don't. I don't. It had come to that time, you know, where I'd been doing that role for seven years and I wanted to have a career as an actor that lasted beyond that. And I was worried that, you know, you get so associated with a role, especially a role like that on a sitcom. And I was so different from the character. And and like I said, I thought the scripts were not what they had been. And it was a combination of that. You know, I actually, I didn't tell this story until about a year ago, but I actually you know, I was leaning towards not coming back. But then I said, you know what? My manager and I came up with an idea. And he said, let's tell them, tell the powers that be at Paramount and whoever they have to talk to, that they were now offering me the biggest raise that I had ever been offered because I was no longer on contract. So, you know, they had raises each year built into the contract and maybe you'd renegotiate a little bit. But now that I was no longer on the contract, they, want, they were offering me by far the biggest raise that I had been offered. And I said, tell them, forget about the raise. I'll come back without a raise. 
I'll do it for the same money, but guarantee me a part in an ABC TV movie or supporting role in a feature film at Paramount so I can do something different and show that. And don't even give me a raise. And they wouldn't do it. Fools. So that's when it was, I said, okay. Then I gave them a, a good chance. <laughs> gave them a good chance. Did they not invite you back for the final episode? No. Mm. No. That stinks. That's like a disservice to the fans too. I mean, you as well, but I mean, like as fans sitting at home, you want to, you want to see everything kind of culminate. There's a feeling that you have from home that. Absolutely. And you know, I think it was a pretty reasonable request after being on a show for seven years and they know what I'm up against as an actor. They know how difficult it's going to be after. And I'm telling them, don't even give me a raise. (laughs) They could have done better by you. I agree. That was. Yeah, it was unfortunate. But uh, luckily, it was hard. It was very hard to break away, but I kept chipping away, kept chipping away, kept chipping away. And now in the last four or five years, like I've been getting some really great, been busier than I've been in a long time. I did four movies from last November to May. I did four film projects playing completely different roles. Went from playing a pastor to a polygamist, to a prison guard, to a king, to a career criminal, to the owner of a hockey team and the CEO. I mean, you know, it's running... The kind of thing that I've been, what, what I've been wanting to do always, playing all different kinds of roles. And, and I was doing it even before, you know, on television too. I did Star Trek Voyager where I played the, a two-parter, a villain, and, and then a, a show called The Crow, and I play a psychiatrist and alcoholic retired ball, ball player in a movie, independent film called The Ankles. And I won Best Supporting Actor in a feature film at a big film festival recently for Lost Heart, a movie that's on Amazon Prime, where I play a a small town pastor. And awards for this um, viral vignettes that that I'm a big part of them. Actually, I've acted in three episodes. I've directed one of them, and I'm one of the exec producers. Viral vignettes, and it's, it's at the Barrymore Film Festival right now, and people can go and if they look up the Barrymore Film Festival and look for Harvest Time, and it's the one I... Oh, wait, Harvest Time is not part of Viral Vignettes, but that's the one I did with Anson Williams, where we play completely different characters. It's very dark comedy. Very Oh, I watched dark. it. I watched it. Yeah. It was yeah. great. You're, you're your brothers, and yes. uh, Anson needs your kidney. Yes. And you, <laughs> yeah, you play a real... I'll kind just say a sh- jerk. I'll say jerk. But <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm 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 a jerk, all right. I mean, I'm I'm a kind of a shithead, you know. <laughs> but it's it's a really well written piece. It's really you know it's like dark, like David Mamet meets Neil Simon or something like that. It's really good writing, and we had a great time doing it. And and we won several awards at some of the festivals. I got best actor. The New York. Long Island Film Festival and Anside won Best Duo and several. So, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. And Viral Vignettes is another one. The same producer, David Levin, uh, produced both of those. That's at the Barrymore Festival now. People could go on. I watched the Marshall Plan. I started the uh, <laughs> your oh, family yeah. trying to talk you into the real world again. <laughs> oh, yes. But uh, yeah, it's, oh, yes, it's yes. fun stuff. It's fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's some really good material. So, as I'm saying, it, it took a while. It was some tough times, you know, when I told my agent when I left Happy Days, I said, I don't want, I'd like to try to just do film and theater. Now, this was back in 19, you know, 80, 81. And it was very hard back then to go from TV to film. Not like today, where there's a bridge between the two mediums. You go back and forth. People who are doing movies do TV and vice versa. Back then, it was like, 
film actors and television, especially sitcoms. So it was very hard. So, but I told my agent, I, I don't want to do television for a while. I would like to just try to do film and theater. Well, I was able, I got theater, but I went nine months. I couldn't even get an audition for a film. They wouldn't even, you know, that's how it was like that because, oh no, the, from happy days now, i not right for this, you know, it was difficult. So, but then I said, okay, let's do some television. I started, like I said, chipping away and getting something here and there and there is a little different, a little more different and theater, more and more theater. And, and it just, it started breaking open the cracks, you know. Now these really, really cool projects have been coming my way. So, and, and then I also directed three independent films during that time period. Um, one's called The Last Best Sunday, a very dramatic piece. It's on Amazon. No, it's on Tubi. And then a film called Mula, which is on Amazon Prime, which I won like Best Outstanding Director, where it premiered at the Newport Beach Film Festival. And introduced Shailene Woodley. She was 13 years old. It was her first film, and now she's oh, wow. gone on to do a lot of a lot of stuff. She's pretty big and a lot great cast in in Mula. And I have several projects right now that I'm getting excited about that I might, you know, I'm attached to direct and we're trying to get it financed, set up, and, and some real traction on them lately. So I'm feeling optimistic I'll be doing that again. And then, of course, then I went back to singing a little bit, brought that back into the into the fold. I love the singing. I, w- I put on, I cranked up uh, Spotify and I started listening. And oh, I, cool. It's great. I don't listen to the, the Great American Songbook that much. So it was, it was nice to hear it. And you have an amazing voice. Oh, thank you. I did it in my research. I, w- I know Anson beat you to the singing on Happy Days. But, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Right. But there was one scene, at least, uh, yeah, there may have been more, but at least one that I found where you did sing on Happy Days, and it was during the dance marathon. Oh, right, right, the dance marathon. The reason the dance marathon, that episode always stuck out in my head as as a Jewish boy, is Henry Winkler wins by doing the Hava Nagila. He does, right. uh, and I always remember thinking to myself, like, you know, like when you people talk about, oh, you see something of, of your, you know, of who you are in, in a show, like, you know, Judaism. That was, it, it wasn't pointed out that that was a very traditional Jewish dance, but it was like, I knew it, right? Right. <laughs> and it, right. I, if you were just watching it, you'd be like, wow, Henry Winkler is doing a really kick ass dance. That is yeah. really physical dance to win this thing. Yeah. I know, but you were, you, you definitely, you sang uh, during that episode. And so, but I always remembered that. I sang the anniversary waltz. Right, right, right. Wh- yeah, exactly. Which, which Jolson had made famous. It was a Jolson song. That's why they gave it to me. <laughs> That's awesome. So how often are you singing now? Are you, do you tour? Do you do just special dates or? I was doing it more before the pandemic. Pandemic sort of cut into that. But I did recently, not back in November, I did my first symphony. I sang with the Hershey Symphony in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which I loved. It was fabulous. And um, then I did another date in, at a club in Florida. Oh, then I did another one down in um, at a performing arts center near Orlando not too long ago. But it hasn't really opened up in a big way yet. So I'm looking forward to getting back into doing it more often. And in between, hopefully more you know, TV and film roles and maybe directing. But my manager and I have been talking, they're, they're trying to set up, I might be doing a tour in Italy, which I would love because Happy Days was very big in Italy, still is. So they're talking about a tour for me there, also one in New Zealand and Australia and maybe the UK. So that would be fun. I'd love to do that. And then continue doing more places in, in, in the US. So 
you know, I used to do, to work things out, some of the jazz clubs in LA and New York. I've done a bunch of really cool jazz clubs in New York City, which I love doing. So I hope to do more of that. And I probably will, you know, once things open up. But I'm also working, you heard, what you heard on Spotify was probably, I have a CD out called D-Most, Mostly Swinging. Right. And it's with a great big band, great jazz studio players from LA, wonderful arrangements by Willie Murillo. And, you know, I loved it. It was a blast doing it. And it came out really well, really well. But I'm about to finish. We were close to finish. I was doing another CD with a producer that's based in Nashville. And it's a little different. It's still going to be jazz standards, great American songbook, but not with a big band, a more contemporary jazz configuration. And um, it's coming along great. I'm really excited. But we had to stop right in the middle of COVID. You know, we were getting close to finishing. The plan is that I'm going there in about a month and we're going to do the last three songs to finish it up. And then it'll come out this year. So we don't have a title yet for it, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. It's really, it's different than the, the one that you played, but I think it's really good. How do, as a musician, how do you get the word out? Growing up, you go to a, a music store and the, the new stuff would all be sitting out. It just seemed like as it got, as, as time went on, it's just, it became harder because digital didn't make things easier. Like it was nice to be able to go to a bookstore and just kind of bathe in the books or a music store and just bathe right. in things and, and explore and, and find things. You know, so it's it's got to be harder now to like, you got to really have a marketing machine to like get people to know that. Even not just anybody, even like if I know, you know, I don't know the answer to that. You know, um, I, I sometimes ask the same, very same question to like, you know, the producer that I'm working with. And I don't know. It's a different game now. It's very different. I guess what I'm hoping to make it easier to get that word out is obviously, you know, the more you do it, people become aware of it. But but on a bigger level, if, like you said, if you don't have a big machine behind you and like a big record label that's going to put a lot of money into promotion and making sure you get because the producer will say, well, for us to get on you know, the radio stations, if it's in the adult contemporary thing, it's going to cost a crazy amount of money to, to hire a promoter to get it out there. You know, if we do it in this category, it might not be as much. And, you know, it just seems like, wow, what do you do? So, you know, I'm hoping that could get a national platform to get it out there again, you know, so maybe um, if I could get on some of the talk shows like I used to get on, you know, back in the day and talk about it or sing, uh, you know, sing a song on the show. So, you know, I get another current television series, you know, that'll help, you know? So if I get a series again, then I can get the word out and probably- well, Let's make that happen. All right, What last question. Your publicist comes to you with this idea. Do you fire him or do it? Hey, Don, here's a way to uh, get your music out there. We got you a gig on The Masked Singer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, I don't fire him. It's funny because, you know, several people have said, oh, you should do The Masked Singer. You should do it. I don't know. You know, I watched it once or twice, and um, I guess I have mixed feelings about it. So uh, the, jury, the jury's still out the on that still. one. <laughs> yeah. Well, Don, I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. This was so much fun. Thank oh, yeah. You. My pleasure. I had a lot of fun just shooting the breeze with you, and you raised some good good topics and some interesting questions, and so I enjoyed it. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Okay. All right. One more, I still got it, and then we'll go. Even with Jeff Dwoskin, I still got it. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> I hope I pronounced it right. You did. You nailed it. You got it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you All so right. much. You, you take care of yourself. All right. Be Thanks, safe. Scott. Bye. You too. Bye bye.
All right. How amazing was Don Most? He's still got it. He's still got it. Even on podcasts, he's still got it. That concludes my Happy Days trilogy. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed having it and bringing it to you. Definitely check out the smooth sounds of Don Most on one of the music streaming platforms. I'll put a link in the show notes, make it easy for you to jump right there and treat your ears to a little Don Most. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. It's time for a trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Download the free, always free hashtag roundup app at the Google Play Store or iTunes app store. Download the hashtag roundup app. Get notified every time a game goes live. Tweet along with us. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. Today's hashtag, inspired, of course, by the conversation I had with Don Most, where we talked about catchphrases. This hashtag is hashtag outdated slang and phrases, brought to you by our friends at the Fresh Coast Tags, hosted by Mark and Paul, who is a super fan of the show. So great to be able to do a hashtag that he hosted back in the day. Hashtag outdated slang and phrases, a hashtag just to collect those terms and things that we say that have run their course. Tweet your own hashtag outdated slang and phrases to me at Jeff Dewaskin show. I'll show you some love on the Twitter. In the meantime, here's some handpicked hashtag outdated slang and phrases for you to enjoy. All that in a bag of chips. Get you on the flip side. Where's the beef? Gag me with a spoon. Right on, brother. Hula la boo. Straight from the horse's mouth. What's up? Five finger discount. These are some amazing hashtag outdated slang and phrases. Here's some more. As if. Actually, I like that one still. Check out MySpace. Sit on it. Wait a minute. Let's keep that one in. Call me. (laughs) Hey, good looking. What you got cooking? Making whoopee. Suck it up, buttercup. Wicked awesome. Kiss my grits. Bring home the bacon. In it to win it. Hashtag outdated slang and phrases have never sounded so good. I'll be back in two shakes of a lamb's tail. Kill him with kindness. Be kind. Rewind. Gone but not forgotten. Page me. She's the bee's knees. Raise the roof. All right. And our final hashtag outdated slang and phrases tweet. Let's blow this popsicle stand. Oh, all right. Oh, man, who knew there were so many phrases that used to be so amazing that we just have gone the way of the dodo? Well, with the hashtag portion of the show complete, with the interview section of the show complete, it can only mean one thing. Episode 116 has come to a close. Where does the time go? I want to thank again my amazing guest, Don Most. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.